I'm really focused on driving net new. It's almost like when you see a CMO that comes into business and the first thing you want to look at is acquisition. Like, am I getting enough stuff at the top? And then I'll start to refine the conversion. And so for me, it's net new, because if that's weak, then I'm not finding channels yet to scale the business. Hey, Dan Maga here. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of the leading tech stack agency, Maga.io. Every week, I speak to executives and find out the stack they're using to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. This week, Horacio Zambrano, the CMO at Secret Double Octopus and a cybersecurity strategist. He's been tasked with scaling up the business as they shoot for their Series C funding. Secret Double Octopus specializes in passwordless authentication for enterprise companies. And in 2020, they raised $15 million in their Series B. And a year later, they then were named the best in class for enterprise passwordless authentication by the 8 Group. I think it's also pronounced like A-I-T-E group or 8 Group. I don't know. You, you figured out. You know how to use Google. Horacio, though, has over 20 years of experience in marketing. He's been an executive at a lot of early stage and mid-stage cybersecurity startups such as TrueU, Versec, and Meccano. And he's also spent some time at big giants like Cisco and Juniper. So dude's been around and has a great rounded out experience that we can all learn from. Today, he joins to share the insights into his stack and the strategies involved at scaling up Secret Double Octopus. Let's jump in. My name is Horacio Zambrano. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Secret Double Octopus. We're an early-stage cybersecurity vendor. I live in Oakland, California, and have been with many cyber companies, startups, and big vendors as well. Now you've been you've not only been in just marketing, right? You're the CMO now, but before becoming a CMO, right? You've had a lot of different types of roles at companies though. Yeah, I've had a, a journey, uh, not traditional, I would say. I've always had a a product marketing orientation. Even when I was in pro- I was in product management for a while, and I was not the guy who wanted to sit down and do a lot of requirements documents and and drive the the inbound I was definitely more the outbound product marketer, talking to customers, the roadmap, evangelizing a new thing, transformative thing. So I think that was always a natural bent for that. And um, so I've had that ability to communicate. And then I'd spent five years on Wall Street with the, the cybersecurity industry looking at it as an analyst. So there was a lot of data, spreadsheets and data. So I think that really fits well with marketing, this communication ability, evangelization, and the data-driven part. I think the bigger transition has been from large corporate like Cisco and Juniper to early stage startup, Series A, and now I'm doing Series B and scaling. So that's been a lot of learning. I think uh, that's been the, the trajectory I've had. These are big companies, and you've made the transition now to a pretty early stage company. I mean, Double Octopus isn't small by any means, but tell us a little bit about what Double Octopus is and what does it do and the size of the company. So Double Octopus, we, we're still a small company. We're Series B going to Series C. So we have to really build in uh, some marketing operations and metrics, much more KPI-driven to get to Series C. I think it's a, an emerging space. It's very exciting. It's part of uh, identity and access management, part of cybersecurity. So it's passwords. We're, we're fundamentally selling an enterprise workforce. So for your employees, a passwordless solution. And that's a wave that's growing in the industry. And um, we have competitors and frenemies like Microsoft and Okta that, that also have offerings. So we have to differentiate. And yeah, we're a global company based out of Israel with all the go-to-market executives and much of the sales force and, and sales engineers here in the U.S. So it's global and it's growing. And so my marketing team is small. I have uh, three people and we just hired a product marketer. And two of those people are in, uh, in Tel Aviv. 
So there's a global aspect. And I've inherited, you know, I have a deeper cybersecurity background than the former head of marketing. So they brought me in to sort of level up the marketing, global marketing operations and get us more positioned as an Israeli outside, you know, I think one third of all cybersecurity investments now are coming out of Israel. So a lot of these companies need to get positioned in the U.S. because this is really the market they try to, to dominate in first. What are the major KPIs that you're either measured on or how your department is measured on? Like, what are the big uh, metrics you're staring at every day? So that's been a big part of the uh, leveling up that we've done is really get really good uh, performance measurement around our channels. Luckily, our sales force is set up very well from an opportunity from the bottom of the funnel. So as soon as you open the opportunity, we have a decent top of the funnel, MQL, SAL, SQL uh, sort of funnel. And so we've been able to analyze that, but we're still certainly building that. So for us, I look at obviously percentage of, of revenue or ARR that marketing contributes relative to the what the partner channel is doing, an indirect channel. I look at what marketing channels are delivering my best MQLs. Well, first of all, the, my best acquisition at the top of the funnel and which ones are, are delivering my highest quality. So SQLs are opportunities off of that. And of course, there's a win rate on the uh, the win rate that we're looking at on the ops that we we open. And the challenge I'm still having is through Salesforce is just tying the top of the funnel with the bottom of the funnel. So you have a real cohort analysis from when the lead was created to have your real convert your your whole data funnel, right? Your conversion percentages. So we have that at the top of the funnel, and then we have it somewhat from opportunity down. So we have a win rate. But what we need to do is finish that end-to-end funnel, which I think Marketo would would maybe give it to you out of the box. Um, we use HubSpot, so there, there's a lot more instrumentation around that and things we need to add. You know, month to month, I'm looking at did we see a, a drop in any of the channels? We, in particular, are getting a lot through SEO. This company invested in SEO. They created a security wiki, which most startups in cyber don't do, but it's ju- definitely driving a lot of traffic to our website. So. The other thing I'm looking at now is CRO, conversion rate optimization on the website, because if I'm driving, getting that much traffic, which 70% of our traffic is coming from sort of a segment we don't really know if they're real buyers, they're just coming to educate on the security wiki that we have. But how can I cherry pick that audience? And we use LinkedIn actually to see that some of that audience is truly enterprise and some of them are in the IT space. So how do I cherry pick them and bring them over to the other parts of our website that have more conversion on it? So I think um, our number one channel is direct traffic. And given that that's the case, people are already associating our brand, coming to our website and and asking for a demo. So if I can convert more of that traffic to um, a high intent signal like that, I'm going to be more successful with growing the leads. Um, so that's one of the things I'm looking at now. Now, when you think about, you're going back to some of those metrics, it sounds like a, you're getting a fair amount of your metrics out of Salesforce, right? And then when you talk about that top of funnel metrics, what are you using for your measurement at the top of the funnel? We've set up the, the Salesforce in a way where um, the lead statuses are well designed and everything is, is matched to a campaign in Salesforce. Nobody was using the HubSpot campaigns. It, really, everything is driven there, all the workflows as we get people coming in through a webinar or a white paper, it's always associated to a campaign. So I clean, we made sure to clean that structure up very, very nicely when, when I got here. Now, the, the campaigns, though, that when they fill out that lead gen form, right, is that the campaign is like they came in through that white paper? Is that what's getting tracked in Salesforce? Yeah. So we have a campaign for content downloads. We have a campaign for PPC, all the channels that we, we run, webinars. 
And then we get the, obviously the form is from HubSpot. So we, we then build the workflows around that to, as they come in, set the lead status. And then we, we have, uh, our SDRs are still manually going through to do, we're going to be starting to automate the qualification. So if it's under a certain size, go straight to, to this. If it's a ge- geography, it goes to this person. Maybe we'll do that with Chili Piper or we'll do it in Salesforce itself. Automation is something we'll continue to grow out in the Salesforce, the HubSpot, and then the Sales Loft is really our, out, our one-to-one SDR tool. That's kind of the trifecta, I call it. Now, what about like a, a Google Analytics at the top for doing your kind of channel measurement, right? Right. So we run the reports in Salesforce to get the SQL, MQL numbers. We have dashboards there. Uh, we use Google Analytics and HubSpot traffic analytics, but those don't always match up. We're using U- UTM codes uh, in- more increasingly to, to get better visibility on all that. So yeah, we have Google Analytics. We have some conversion events. But here's one of those decisions that you have to make as a, even as a Series B. I feel like if you don't have, you know, we have three people. We have specialists, contractors, and freelancers that if you took them, we have probably have seven or six. So really, my team is really three going to four full-time plus when you, t- you look at the fractional freelancers that we have, it's probably six to seven. But the issue is, do I have the time in the day to go and really work Google Analytics? We have it all set up, Google Tag Manager, Google Search Console, Google Analytics. But the ability to do analysis of that and drive almost growth growth marketing in that way is difficult uh, at this point, right? Because we're just too small. But yeah, I look at those numbers. But it's really like there's no one dashboard yet for us. So really, Salesforce is our... our uh, our mainstay system that we build off of. And then we use the other ones, supplemental like HubSpot Analytics or, or Google Analytics. By the end of this call, I'll get you on Google Data Studio and we'll get you some some dashboards so you can start pulling that stuff together. We've done some of that, yeah. A little bit of that. Yeah? Good. I'm happy to hear that. So going back to these KPIs, right? So a, a big focus sounds like it's on marketing-generated revenue, marketing-generated pipeline, seeing where you stand in regards to the partner channel. W- what are the big uh, projects you're running right now that are helping you hit your KPIs? Like what tactics or strategies? So it's interesting. PPC, Google Search by itself, has not necessarily been a profitable channel. It does generate a fair amount of, of activity, but it doesn't always lead to high-quality, like, leads that turn into deals. But we have noticed our direct traffic improves when we have it. So there's an indirect benefit to search and to now we're doing Google Display Network. So I know that if I turn that on, I I nearly double my website traffic. So, you know, if I turn that off, I see my my network traffic excluding the wiki pages, just real people coming to the website interested in passwordless, it goes down. So there's uh, some of these channels, you can't measure them just by the ROI on the channel you got to really figure out if they're influencing other things. And that's campaign attribution, which we don't have yet, but I'd like to get in place. The other thing that we're doing a lot is intent. Like just looking at intent signals, uh, measuring if somebody's coming to the website, which by the way, sales loft, tech target, a bunch of content, you know, third-party intent providers will, will give you a signal on that. And then tying that into a more coordinated outreach from an SDR via LinkedIn for connection, that then later you use for promotion and email and uh, some level of phone calling. So that is, uh, I think, what works the best today. When you break all those out separately, like if you just have somebody phone calling you, it's a low percentage game and it's expensive. 
if you break out just doing emails by itself. So I think it's really the cohort. It's almost starting to sound like an ABM-ish approach, and we're now starting to retarget as well, build audiences, retarget more on LinkedIn, possibly than Google because of the targeting. So it's starting to move toward an ABM sort of uh, approach, but cobbled together, and that's where I'm starting to think about next year, do we look at a sixth sense or do we look at a, a demand base, right? Let's break in here for a second to talk about intent. We've been hearing a lot about intent data in the market. Some people end up on your site and they don't fill out a lead gen form, but there are tools that will read the visitor's IP so you can gather what person or what company has actually visited. With some of the advanced tools like Demandbase, you can even get the person's contact data and get their firmographic and technographic data as well. You can use that data to target potential sales prospects. You can also use other things like Clearbit Reveal, ZoomInfo, and Demandbase to really understand who's visiting your site. There is a plenty of providers nowadays for intent data, and if you want to learn more about how this works, go back a few weeks in our podcast and listen to the interview with John Miller. He's the CMO of Demandbase and also the founder of Marketo. That was a really, really good episode. On the other side of intent-based data providers, you have third-party intent providers like Bumbora. They have partnerships with websites where they track what content visitors are consuming and then connect those visitors' content consumption to cookies, IPs, local storage, live ramp IDs, and even magic voodoo, and then sell that visitor's intent to companies like you or me. For example, let's say you're the CTO of Microsoft and you visit Forbes.com and you read about cybersecurity. Bombor will track that and then sell that intent and the firmographic contact information to companies selling cybersecurity products. I know, this is kind of creepy stuff, especially when they can send you the info saying the CTO of Microsoft has intent to buy something in the cybersecurity space. Now, you don't get to know that they were reading some article at Forbes.com, but Bombora tracked that and then was able to tie that together then tell you the CTO of Microsoft was interested in that type of content, which might inform your sales team to contact the CTO of Microsoft because they have intent in cybersecurity. You also have companies like TechTarget and G2 Crowd who have content about tools and services on their site. And then when, let's say, the VP of marketing from DNS Filter checks out marketing automation tools on one of those sites, they then sell that as intent data to the marketing automation providers. So again, more intent data and more people are being sold out simply by visiting and reading content on other people's sites. Horacio had more to say about the tools he's using for that data, so let's get back to him. So it sounds like you're using Sales Loft and you have Tech Target. Those are providing you intent signals as in you can do outbound or they're identifying the users that are coming to the site to help you see that they had intent? They're identifying the users that came to the site or in the case of Tech Target, that went to their site and did keywords or they downloaded, in the case of content syndication, our white papers over there. So I know when somebody downloads a white paper on my website, there's probably higher intent because our conversion numbers look better on those people than when you get them from a third-party site. But this is classic cybersecurity, long sales cycle, lots of white papers, educate your buyer over time because we do see that nurture takes, in some cases, six to seven months. We're seeing people from last summer that are now converting the challenge with a content syndication play in, in this market is that you do that and you want to get that, you get this somebody downloaded the white paper and you've spent a lot of money for that. So you want to get them in a meeting very quickly. And we have a, a very good system in sales loft to try to make that happen. You know, it's a 16 day, seven touch points, you know, solution for that. 
Before we get to the marketing automation, long-term nurture. That's the monthly the monthly nurture. So there are two separate types of nurtures, like one's a more one-to-one outreach. And you don't get that conversion all the time with these third-party intent providers. And so that's one challenge with that. And then the second one is that we're passwordless authentication. And some of these providers like Bombora, Zoom Info, they're barely, in fact, because I requested it, they're barely opening up that keyword passwordless authentication. And before that, you have to kind of go with these really broad categories like authentication or identity or MFA. And that doesn't convert as well. So one challenge with with intent tools or ABM tools that do use intent is that if you're in an emerging category, can you really get fidelity off of those older categories to your emerging category? And those very expensive decisions when you're a Series B, Series A. So this experimentation is getting me better at making those decisions, those purchases, pushing these vendors to bring in the right categories and signals. And then, like I said, combining that signal with a cohort of activities, a group of activities, because in and of themselves, I don't find that they're, they're being successful. Now, you had mentioned Sales Loft has a 16-point nurture in it. Now, are the SDRs on the marketing team there? 16-day. Oh, 16-day. Yeah. At this point, we have one SDR, and it's owned by marketing, which I want to own at this point. If I'm being measured by MQLs and, and percentage of revenue, I have to control the messaging at this point in the company because it's still early days. We're not at the, you know, before this point, we have a founder selling where the founder has to be there. We're past that point. We've got sales guys and we've kind of... Congrats. Yeah, we've templatized it. But at the same time, we're trying to find go-to-market scale. And to do that, you might need to play with messaging. You need to, to do verticalized messaging. You need to find an insertion point. And I want my SDRs, I want to be able to see what they're saying and, and modify that those scripts and test that out for discovery. If I give it to sales, they're going to do it the way they've been doing it all their career. And they may work. I mean, you have it's going to be across the board very different. So we want to be analytic and data-driven about it too. You said there's one SDR on your team. Are they mainly focused on outbound uh, and trying to capture new things out there, like using that tech target intent data? We're lucky enough that we generate enough inbound, like requests for demos and contact us and, and white papers and webinars that she is probably 80% allocated to following up on that and getting those meetings. A request for demos is high intent. That's going to 90% to 95% you're going to get that meeting. But if a, a webinar or a white paper, we're doing that 16-day high-touch SDR to try to, even on one, like says, we're not doing enough lead scoring, right? Because lead scoring would say they've got to see several things and firmographically be the right type of person before we go and reach out and try to get a meeting. At this point, we're, we're very simplistic about it. We're one-to-one seeing top spot to Salesforce. We're being very aggressive on the SDR side. So if you you would look at one white paper or, or one of our webinars, we're going to put you, educate you about our product through various touch points and try to get you to come have a meeting up front. And so that's a very aggressive approach. It's very Israeli, I think. And it was working. So I didn't really change that. You know, normally I could say, well, let's if let's go put some lead scoring in place and that's going to cut my MQLs down. And as a new CMO, cutting down my MQLs by a half to 70% would have been a great thing to do. And so I'm not ready to do that, but we will get there as we scale. And the second, this idea of, I always thought you got to build your nurture in Marketo or HubSpot and and try to make it that way. But I think the SDR one-to-one, you know, really taking advantage of outreach or sales loft. We had outreach at one point. That's also very good. So we're, we're doing it that way. And then we, we drop them back to a long-term nurture. But it is the, it's not an SDR... It's an SDR which has marketing skills. They can get into the HubSpot. They get into Salesforce. They can, they're 
measuring the lead status. They're pushing. It's kind of a coordinator SDR. So that leaves us very little time to do cold call prospecting, which is what now I'm trying to fill that gap as well with some other strategies here. What about like the data infrastructure, right? Like are, is your team leveraging like an ETL tool to pull data out of Salesforce? It doesn't sound like there's a huge business intelligence or data warehouse. I looked at it a bit. You have VCs that come at your board will come at you and show you these pretty tableau visualizations that other companies your size are doing. And why can't I get this from you? Well, that, I mean, when you talk to those companies, they have a VP of ops and they've got one or two people working, a data analyst, data engineering that goes into the rev ops stuff. So I think I wanted to go approach, take that on, to be honest, when I got here and uh, I started looking into it. Maybe I could do stuff in Power Builder, just pull some data together. I looked at Clipfolio and, and just bringing the Google Analytics data in with the with the HubSpot. And you know, it's honestly, it's another thing that as a as a small team, you've got to have a person doing, uh, allocated to do, right? And I, I my biggest, uh, I guess, realization at this stage of company is that marketing ops, you've got the campaign ops person who runs the, clones the campaigns and can set them up and set your webinar up and make sure the leads are coming through. And then you've got the system architects that have built it from scratch. And that's a different skill set, right? And I've done a little bit of, of helping on that. But, you know, when you start looking at bringing on these new tools, ETL, that's definitely getting into a domain. If I was running an e-commerce marketing or, or a, a true self-service product-led growth, I would probably get there a lot sooner. But like I said, we're, there's a sales-led growth motion and there's a hybrid PLG sales-led where you're, you're trying to do a free trial. Or free, and, and that is where probably we're going. I think that's also important is what's your go-to-market, what's your business model on that decision. And for me, the other thing is that the data has to be there. <laughs> so the data has to be clean. So when you get to a, an early-stage company, you've got to also build the culture of being a data-driven company. And in the processes, like I'm literally one of my marketing analysts, I'm making them, you know, their KPI is... Because I set up, we set up all the fields. To do the ETL, you need to be capturing in a, in a standardized way the data that you need to analyze. Well, here they had open field text in Salesforce. Like, you know, who's the competitor? It's just an open, anybody can type in whatever. So you need to go back and normalize those inputs if you're going to go back or you're going to set it up for the future. And so that clock, I've set those fields up. But now you've got to get your salesperson or your, your data analyst, your SDR half data analyst to put the data, to actually fill it out, to go back and listen to the discovery call that the sale. So there's a lot of cultural process to build to get captured data. We put in place Clearbit to get some enrichment. We looked at Hustly as well. And with, with some of that enrichment, I can start to build some rules that automate capturing like company size so I can break into segments. So our next thing is to start looking at segment analysis, like what's a 500 to 1000. So even though we're going to do it in some dashboards and reports, that's step one is to get the data clean and set it up so that you actually know what you want to see in the ETL. I'm just going to back things up here for a minute. Horacio just mentioned something that's super important to consider when it comes to your data. No matter how much data you collect, if it's not clean, it's not going to be very helpful. Garbage in equals garbage out. Dirty data can be really damaging for your business. In 2016, IBM reported that bad data costs the U.S. economy $3.1 trillion in data every single year. That's why your data taxonomy of your stack is so imperative. Having clean data starts with having a well-planned data taxonomy, also known as a schema or even a data dictionary. 
If you don't pre-plan your data taxonomy, cleaning the data is going to take up a lot of time and in many cases is not even fixable. If you want to learn more about how to build your data taxonomy for the stack, go check out the resources section at magov.io. We have multiple free webinars where I teach you exactly how to get started with your taxonomy. In my opinion though, your customer data is the most valuable asset that you have as a business. And if you get the data wrong, you're gonna get crushed by other companies who have figured out how to harness their customer data for growth. Okay, enough of me, let's hear more from Horacio. When I think about a stack, right, as an example, you kind of got the advertising stack, the demand generation stack, the mop stack, the sales stack, right? Now, once somebody gets into your product, right, you have to, of course, have retention. Like, are you measured on only net new or are you also focused on trying to prevent churn and retention or is that owned by another department? Yeah, so we're when you get to Series C, you start to specialize. You know, we, we do have customer success now that's looking at churn. Luckily, our churn is very low. It's uh, under 10%, and it ranges from, you know, 5 to 7%. But that's something that is important for Series C. We have to keep a close eye on that. But I'm mo- mostly focused on net new. And, of course, sometimes we get upsells, upsells within the year. So you get your, your net new ends up being a pilot that then, like, two months later, the sales rep opens another op in Salesforce. So you, so really, the ARPU, the average revenue per should be combined of those two things. Even though your funnel, you should count it as one. So that that's a complexity that Salesforce will will drive in your in your true data analysis of your funnel, because sometimes we've had situations where we, we signed a, a phase one, and then there were two other opportunities within the first nine months. And if you think about it, marketing generated that, but the actual average revenue of deals you're you're generating should be really the addition of all three of those. But in terms of the actual conversion, it was really kind of one account, one deal. And so after a certain amount of time, we treat that as an upsell. And so I'm, I'm really focused on driving net new. It's almost like when you see a CMO that comes into business and the first thing you want to look at is acquisition. Like, am I getting enough stuff at the top? And then I'll start to refine the conversion. And so for me, it's, it's net new because if that's weak, then I'm not finding channels yet to scale the business. And I, what I want to do now is experiment and find channels to scale the top, the acquisition. And then we'll we'll figure out the rest of it. Well, now that I have a very experienced product marketer, I can sort of hybrid have him look at the choke points on the conversion and, and do we need a sales tool? Do we need a white paper for the buyer journey at that point? So that's how I think about it. You know, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of cybersecurity companies in the past. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen is most successful, and you've already proven this, right, with your wiki, are the free tools. We've worked with multiple cybersecurity companies, and we're like, well, how? Did, where did you get all this traffic from? They're like, oh, well, we have this free analyzer thing uh, that generates a half a million views per month. Uh, so tools are really big. And you have the wiki, I guess, like, when you think about your future strategy, have you thought about additional tools or other ways you can get those people to use you? We're investing in a ROI calculator. So that with some good SEO behind it, you're going to get, because people in an emerging category, you, you have to have that top of funnel. What are people in the buyer journey asking? Is like, is it worth it? What's my ROI on this? And so we have enough, this in particular has enough data points that you can create an ROI calculator based on the numbers that they would plug in or even some assumptions from Forrester and Gartner. You can make a pretty easy ROI calculator and then drive a lot of traffic, create some infographics and push that. And so that's what we're investing in for free. We will eventually get to a free trial for the IT, the, the champions, the influencers. If you think about it, like a company will deploy our solution to all employees. 
But the ones that make that buying decision are a group of two to four people, two to five, and then they pilot it with 20 or 30 IT people. So what if we offered a free trial to those people, right? So that's part of becoming a, a PLG company in a, in a deep tech cyber you know, category. Everybody's all over PLG right now, product-led growth, product-led growth, all over the place. And it's funny because I've been in, do- I'm just like yourself, we've been doing this for so long. We're like, great. So we've been doing this for years. You just came up with an acronym for it. Okay, great. Now you got all the, the praise for it. But I've been doing this since 2002. So uh, you ever feel that way with some of these things? Like- what, do you, what do you think about RevOps? What do you think about RevOps versus Mark? Oh, my. What's your view on Rev- RevOps as a name versus sales and marketing? You know, I think um, in the right companies, like there is definitely a classification on how those can kind of work. So I definitely agree. Like RevOps, of course, is much more C-suite when it comes down to the operations and when they're trying to deliver numbers. And sales ops is typically going to uh, less of the the C-suite and more of the people that are on that team and marketing ops. But again, these are, I'm talking about big companies that have these set up but in a lot of companies, right, you, you've got a lot of different ops. And that's what I'm saying is like everything's being switched to ops. Most people are now in finance ops. They're not financial analysts anymore. They're financial operations professionals. And it's it's like the death of the spreadsheet. Like when you think about the spreadsheet, the spreadsheet was used for every single thing we could think of in business. Now we have a product which has replaced that spreadsheet, right, everywhere. And that is like SaaS is trying to kill the spreadsheet. So in my opinion, operations professionals are trying to kill every other role in a company at a certain clip. And that's, you just got more and more ops. I mean, the next big one is big ops, which um, people will talk more about later. But yeah, so you got a lot of ops people. You know, DevOps, DevOps, and DevSecOps are huge in cybersecurity. And those have been big fields that have grown in the last five to seven years. I pay a ton of money for DevOps because of security stuff, man. You're totally right. DevOps, crazy. I love it. Now, let's switch gears, though. I have, I have a, a, an interesting question. Have you blown anything up yet at Double Octopus? Like, has there any, been any big mistakes while trying to build this stack yet? Or have you, you had any big errors? You know, there have been little ones here. I think I blew things up at prior companies, like invest in SEO too early. So that's a good thing of of hiring seven years in multiple startups and advising companies. You know, I don't make as many mistakes now. And uh, like in the past, I might might invest in a HubSpot too early where it's just me and a few contractors. So who's going to really run it or, or clone it? Or I don't have the content. I might invest in SEO without having the buy-in of the CEO for, you know, an 18-month, 12- to 24-month return on that investment and realizing, oh, I also need the content marketing budget to be blogging consistently, and I also need the time to guide the people writing about it. So those kind of things, again, my blueprint is not only on the tech stack, it's also what I call the startup life cycle. Like, I, I look at it in terms of C to A, you got 15 to 18 months, maybe 12 to 15, actually, because you got to start fundraising at six months before to make your, your KPIs and series A to B and B to C. And what are, you, what are you trying to achieve in those phases? And what's the tech stack that you really need, the, the minimum amount of tech stack? So people call it minimum viable product. I call it the minimum viable MarTech stack that you need, that you don't want to overinvest. And I think that picture has become clear to me. Again, and when you come out of a big company is a product marketing head and you you become the head of marketing, that picture may not exist for you yet. And you're going to take your lumps. For sure. Now, when you think about recommendations, if you had three recommendations that you would give to other marketers that are building their stack or starting to build their stack, what would be those three recommendations you would give them? I would say start with your outbound prospecting to get more more looks at your messaging and don't over overthink the inbound marketing 
don't try to go straight into inbound. Take a MailChimp or, or an early hub spot and do a few a newsletter here and there. Like I underestimated bringing in a, an SDR or a junior person and, and using a sales loft or outreach. I mean, seeing what they did here where, you know, you don't even use a HubSpot nurture. You use this 16 to 20-day multiple touch kind of follow-up on people. I think I would start with that actually, an SDR, develop, not a full, obviously you're not going to have budget for a lot of people, but I, I think you could get one junior person, be a player coach, and be actively involved in, in seeing how people resonate with your, your messages in an outbound product like a sales loft or outreach. And then I would start with that. I would definitely invest in your core content, which is like your collateral, a positional white paper a position white paper, which is before you even look at the buyer journey and what questions they may be asking, it's sort of your why, your why. You know, in every industry I see in technology, there's two or three approaches to the same problem. And um, what's your approach? Why is it better? Why is it better than the status quo? That's your your messaging positioning. That needs to be articulated in some sort of ebook or white paper that is your position white paper, which you can use. A sales guy can send it. But you can also start to use it for uh, campaigns and uh, start your, think of your content library, start that process day one with outsource writers or yourself or whatever. Uh, in my case, whatever my positioning hypothesis is, it always gets better when I write one white paper or I write some things, I flush it out, and then we, we build from there. And so that's another advice is to build the content and get past the content bottleneck because that's going to drive your lead gen later. And it's, it's your sales tools that you need anyway. So that'd be a second one. And that starts to build your inbound engine, by the way, the, the, the content. You know, the third one I'd say is get the data clean from the beginning. Most of the time people put a HubSpot CR, you'll use the CRM from HubSpot. I've, I had a lot of resistance to that, by the way, in, in cyber because your VP of sales knows Salesforce. And what happens typically is that they don't customize it and the salespeople they bring on don't use it well so you don't really have a CRM for a long time. You have spreadsheets. And the good thing about Secret Double Octopus is we have a VP of sales who is a power user of Salesforce. He can run reports. He can set up his own dashboards. And he actually drives his team every week with, he's like, okay, let's look at Salesforce. Okay, what deals? And, and they're telling, well, I had these calls, these calls. And he's going to those accounts, looking at what, what they put in the system. So he really lives and dies by his Salesforce. So you've got to have a, a little bit of a, of a VP of sales that really wants to use the CRM tool, whether it's HubSpot or Salesforce, because I've seen that break down a lot in the early stages of a company. Those three things are pretty important, I think, to me. I would imagine so. Now, the when you think about like the prediction of the stack in the future, I mean, what do you think is coming down next for the things that we're going to see in the tech stack? I'd love to get your view on this, but I still like the segments and the lytics, right? The ICPs, are those only more of a SaaS uh, PLG. I mean, I still don't know if I really need that. For example, we do segmentation through the fields that we collect when they come in. That We may have two products and, and we're going to set up two different nurtures in the marketing automation, long-term nurtures. We'll set up different sales loft nurtures. So we're doing some level of segmentation implicitly with the marketing automation sales and CRM. But I know you used to call it the Rosetta Stone to have a segment uh, I still don't know if I need it yet at, at going toward a Series B. I mean, it's not my number one thing. Maybe next year I'll bring it in. Or a Trade.io or, you know, Zapier. I'm able to achieve a Series C scale-out with a one-to-one between HubSpot and Salesforce. 
and not necessarily need to bring in uh, trade.io. And so we want to have the need for, I mean, this is not really about what the industry will see, but um, this is about what I would think uh, an early stage company, sales-led kind of semi-PLG company needs up to Series D when they make these investments. I think a mutiny is interesting. What I see happening, there's about a bunch of buzz of about it over here. So personalization, I would. I still don't think we have the Uber dashboard. And I personally, you know, for campaign execution, I've created my own sort of process, best practices dashboard that brings campaign ops execution into one place. So I I link up a Salesforce and a HubSpot links all the landing pages, all the graphic design. And I think that's a, an interesting area for us. Um, you know, the competitive intelligence and, and high spot like content management tools that plug into Salesforce. I see I see those as Series D. They're already here, but I don't see them being primary investments for Series C through Series D. I think, you know, next year I'll be looking at ABM. Do I need that? I will be looking at automation and like maximizing automation rules in Salesforce and do I switch over to Marketo and get that going? So, yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time, sharing all your information and education with us. This has been awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. No, thank you, Dan. It's great to talk to you. All right, that's all we have for today. Horacio had a lot of great insight. It was great to talk to him about his stack for his cybersecurity company, Secret Double Octopus. Let's run through, though, some of the main points from his interview. First, Horacio talked about customer intent data to target potential customers. He mentioned that he uses Tech Target, but there are other great options like Clearbit Reveal, Bombora, and these can all help you up your game when it comes down to intent data. And if you want to learn more about how intent data works, go check out the interview with John Miller from Demandbase from a few weeks back. Second, he mentioned having an ETL process to put data into a warehouse and have a data engineer to build them custom BI dashboards is really expensive. He talked about how he's using a more affordable route using Google Data Studio. Tools like GDS have pre-built-in connector libraries that enable you to pull directly from different tools in your stack. And there are other solutions out there like Clipfolio or Grogo.com, which might be a better fit for your budget. These products make it much easier for you to pull all of your data into one place and build a dashboard without having to get a data engineer. If you do want to get more advanced and you have more technical chops, you can start with tools like Funnel.io for data extraction and then load all this into BigQuery and even slap Google Data Studio on top of it to build your reports. You've just got to figure out what works for your budget and what you can technically manage. Third, Horacio talked about his free ROI tool and a free trial flow, which is part of their product-led growth strategy. Product-led growth is an amazing strategy, but what I want marketers to know is that having a free trial does not count as having a PLG strategy. If you're serious about PLG, it is a whole lot more than just that. PLG is a partnership between marketing and product to leverage the product to do the hard work for you and to wow the customers with the product compared to a sales rep cramming facts down the prospect's throat. Stay tuned for future episodes in a few weeks with Justin Bauer, Chief Product Officer at Amplitude, where he breaks down their PLG strategy, how they optimize their product to convert, and the ways they use their stack to build a world-class product. That's enough for today. You can join me each week on the stack to learn how you can crush your goals with practical strategies and how your stack can enable them. Because you're interested in this podcast, naturally, the next step is to get a free copy of my book, Build Cool Shit, by visiting buildcoolshit.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Bye.